Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien with Dave Ross. Chris Sullivan, the gang is here. More from our conversation with Dr. Celine Gounder, CBS News contributor and editor at Kaiser Health News. I recently got through my second bout of coronavirus in early April, and it was very different from the first. Namely, no lingering symptoms. Last April, I remember a couple of months of extreme fatigue, and I thought, is this long COVID? I think it was, but how does somebody identify if they have long COVID? I wanted to know from Dr. Gounder if there's a specific time frame or characteristics to look out for. Well, there's not a great definition for long COVID, unfortunately, and this is some of what scientists are still trying to figure out. Is long COVID having symptoms a month after infection, three months, six months, a year after infection? It's it's really hard to figure out what that cutoff should be. Some of the very common symptoms of long COVID include fatigue, brain fog, where you're not thinking straight, shortness of breath, chest pain. Uh, But there is a variety of symptoms that have been associated. And we think that um, it goes back to these blood clots, tiny blood clots in the capillaries in the lungs and other um, small blood vessels throughout the body could be contributing to this. If you think about you have tiny little clots in your lungs, your lungs are not going to be able to oxygenate as well. And when you're not oxygenating as well, you just feel more tired. Mm, That's a good point. So when should somebody seek a medical attention for this? Well, so first of all, if you have symptoms of COVID, you really should get tested for a couple of reasons. One, um, it may have implications for isolation or quarantine, staying home from work or from school. Uh, it may have implications for treatment. So we know that Paxlovid is very effective in keeping people out of the hospital and reducing risk of death from COVID. So Paxlovid is an antiviral pill that can be taken to treat COVID. And then for people who might go on to say develop long COVID, it's really important to have that diagnosis because you really need to be able to ideally uh, document that you had COVID a certain period, uh, point in time and what happened since then. So it can have implications for things like applying for disability. Once you know you have COVID, you, you really should try to get medical care, particularly if you are somebody who's older, has underlying medical conditions, or is immunocompromised. And, and speaking of Paxlovid, I know at least three people who have taken that older, and you know it seems mild at first, and then they test negative, and a few days later it comes back positive, and, and COVID comes roaring back in. What is with this instance with this antiviral drug of causing sort of a, a dual COVID diagnosis? We actually see that in people who don't take Paxlovid oh. as well. So it's it's probably this biphasic or two parts of the life cycle that we're seeing. And I think it's just that people took Paxlovid and started linking it to the drug when in fact it's just part of what you see with COVID, period. Okay. What else should we know about long COVID long term? We're about three years into this virus. We know the term long COVID and some of the um, you know symptoms associated with it, but how long is this here to stay? Will, is it like any other virus? It does seem like the kind of long COVID we're seeing at this stage in the pandemic and the frequency of people getting it is going down. So with uh, more and more people getting vaccinated, some people also getting infected and immune that way, after each wave of COVID infections, after more and more vaccinations, we are seeing the risk go down. Um, And so one of the most important things you can do to reduce your risk of getting long COVID is just to get vaccinated so that if you do have a case, it is a much milder case. 
Early in the pandemic, the long COVID we saw was really from damage to the organs. So damage to the lungs, where the lungs really could not recover from that. They're scarred down. Uh, People who had damage to the heart, many of them have heart failure now. People who developed damage to the kidneys and may now be on dialysis. More recently, as people have been more immune to COVID, we're not seeing that severe organ damage the way we were earlier on. But it's a new kind of long COVID, you could say, where it seems to be a combination of abnormal immune responses, maybe some low-level replication in certain parts of the body, uh, ongoing replication of the virus. And this is an area where researchers are studying, trying to figure out what is really happening in those cases. Yeah. What's your reaction to the news coming out that I think it was the Department of of Energy saying that they have reason to believe a theory that this virus came from a lab in Wuhan? What we do know is it's being characterized as low confidence, um, meaning there's, you know, low confidence that this is true. Honestly, I'm a little bit confused as to why this is being released to the public when you have low confidence information that this would be true. It's going to be very difficult to ever prove with certainty that the virus did not come from a lab leak. What we do know is that it is very common to see viruses spill over into humans from animal populations. Usually it's just limited to, you know, a couple people and then it doesn't keep spreading from person to person. Occasionally that does happen. And that is where um, new emerging infectious diseases have come from, whether that is HIV or Ebola or new strains of flu. So we know that this happens naturally. So without direct evidence that this has definitely happened from a lab leak, we haven't seen that kind of evidence yet. So it's it's really hard to say that that is or is not true. And from your perspective, doctor, you know, have you given any thought to or has the medical community given any thought to the long term effects of this particular virus, uh, COVID-19 on the population, either mental, physical or just uh, social, the long term effects of this? Well, COVID is here to stay. This is going to be one of our respiratory viruses along with all the others. We don't yet know, is this going to be a winter virus, like say the flu? Could it be more like RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, where you see a winter as well as um, spring seasons of infection? We don't know that yet. One thing we do know is that there are certain populations who will remain high risk for complications of COVID, including hospitalization and death, even if they are vaccinated. And that includes the elderly, immunocompromised people, and pregnant women. And so it's really important that we be thinking about, okay, yes, you can get a lot accomplished with vaccination, but what are some of the complementary tools, especially for those high-risk populations, to further reduce the risk? Dr. Celine Gounder, she is the senior fellow and editor-at-large for public health at the Kaiser Family Foundation and Kaiser Health News, also a CBS News medical contributor. Uh, Dr. Gounder, appreciate your time and perspective. It's my pleasure. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. 637, our resident historian Felix Pinnell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map. His quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week... A man from Illinois discovered a last will and testament from 200 years ago with a direct connection to the Pacific Northwest. Morning, Dave. Yeah, as first reported by the Whidbey News Times, somehow or other, the will of one Joseph Whidbey, member of Captain Vancouver's crew when the British explored what's now Washington waters in 1792, 
Well, that will from 1833 turned up in some old papers stacked up in the land of Lincoln. Now, fortunately, the man who found the Whidbey will among his late father's belongings, this is Craig Leach of Mazan, Illinois, he did some Googling and found the South Whidbey Historical Society there in Langley on the south end of the island. He reached out by email and then put the fragile old document in the mail. The president of the Historical Society, a guy named Bill Haroldson, he's thrilled. Haroldson's originally from Seattle. He's been studying Joseph Whidbey for at least 20 years. Even visited Whidbey's grave in the UK and has done all kinds of archival research. So, how does this priceless document rank compared with other items in the South Whidbey Historical Society's collection? Well, I, I gather it would be probably one of the most important ones, uh, you know. And I'm not sure that it really has a financial value, but it definitely has a, a historic value. And I, you know, I've gone through the will. It's 13 pages in length, and. Um, and, you know, I recognize people's names in it, and I understand. So, you know, everything appears to be authentic. Probably one of the few guys in Western Washington who could read uh, Joseph Whidbey's will and recognize names in it. Um, now, Joseph Whidbey never married, but he did accumulate property and cash in his lifetime. Uh, in the 1800s, he worked as an engineer designing the breakwater at Plymouth, which is apparently an engineering marvel. He bought an apartment building in a place called Taunton, which is where the British make their nautical charts. Now, he did have a niece whose daughter was one of his main beneficiaries when he died in his mid-70s back in October of 1833. But if Joseph Whidbey has living descendants now, Bill, Bill Haroldson has been unable to track them down. Now, I asked Bill to give us a quick refresher of the role that Joseph Whidbey played on Captain Vancouver's crew 231 years ago and why Vancouver named that island for him. Vancouver sent Whidbey and Puget and rowboats to go into Deception Pass. They rode in, and by the next day, Whidbey realized that it was an island. And when that got back to Vancouver, in his log, he wrote, you know, I, I named this uh, Whidbey's Island and Deception Passage. That's quite a trip to row around Whidbey Island, including Deception yeah. Pass. Um, now, unlike those uh, those horrible scoundrels, Peter Rainier or the Right Honorable Lord Samuel Hood or Eileen Fitzherbert, the Baron of St. Helens, Joseph Whidbey was actually here in person and he had a hand in surveying what became Whidbey Island. So there hasn't been this... Car- Excuse me, hasn't been this call to rename the island the way there have been some other places named after British people. Um, now, Bill Haroldson says that they have digitized the will. It'll eventually be available on their website. It does clear up the spelling of Whidbey. Some old maps have many different spellings. Um, but that W-H-I-D-B-E-Y, the one we all know and love, that is correct. Mm-hmm. And uh, Craig Leach, back there in Illinois, he has no idea where it came from. His father did collect old documents, bought a lot of stuff at auctions. But there's no direct connection between Craig Leach's dad and England and Joseph Whidbey. But uh, one last thing, I looked. I don't see any. There's no treasure map on that. I was hoping there'd be a treasure map yeah, that would show something well, like an Oak Harbor being some tr- treasure chest buried. But that's not there. But it is still a pretty cool document. I'm just amazed how casual they were about naming these things. Okay, we're going to Whidbey's Island. <laughs> yeah. Then you're stuck with it for 200 200- Years. Well, he did row around the island for nine days or I something. Guess he put so, a lot of blood and sweat I mean, into A lot of people could yeah. have done that. And there, of course, there is there is an indigenous name. I haven't seen enough to back up the actual research behind that. Mm-hmm. I still need to do more research to see what that name was actually called before people from Europe arrived That's here and started ran willy nilly throwing names on things. We got to find the indigenous name. I mean, we know what it is for for Tahoma, but all the these other islands have their names. Well, this one there's there's a word there's Chia Kol Chai, which I'm probably mispronouncing. Mm-hmm. I see, I've seen in one book with no research backing it up, and I don't want to uh, sort of uh, proliferate that rumor, but that's the only name I could find for it in terms of an indigenous name. Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. 649 Seattle's Morning News. It is day two of Emerald City Comic Con, where you can meet artists, buy some art for your wall, and get some permanent art added to your body. Cairo News Radio's Paul Holden paid a lengthy visit to the shiny new Seattle Convention Center. 
That's the sound of one of my mom's nightmares. Tattoos. I finally rebelled against my parents in college and got my first tattoo and recently got my third. It's Luigi. You know, the green guy from Super Mario Brothers hitting a baseball that is on fire. It's exactly what I wanted, and I'm so glad to have a piece that embraces my nerddom. Embracing nerddom through tattoos was the exact idea Mark Draven, founder of Ink Fusion Empire and global body art director for Comic-Cons, had when he wanted to bring his two loves, tattooing and nerd culture, together. There's a lot of opportunity here that would not have been presented by just working regular tattoo conventions. There's only a few tattoo conventions I'll still do, um, and I haven't done one in probably a decade. Ink Fusion Empire started as just Draven, tattooing at conventions, and has now grown to a team of artists from across the world with license agreements with Lucasfilms, Paramount, Star Trek, and tons more. There would be other tattoo artists that come into the Comic-Con and look, and they think it was some kind of carny actor, a circus you know, sideshow freak. Uh, and then they would see how busy I was. And then the next year, they'd be set up across the way. So I'd, I'd ask my health inspector, well, how'd your other inspection go? Nobody else called for another inspection, just you. <laughs> oh, okay. So then we developed the program to where everybody falls under my permit. It's all, all under one tent. So the promoter knows it's a safe establishment. They've met the health inspectors. You know, we've got the paperwork to show that the inspection's been done. The manifest for the biomedical waste transfer support. Everything's in line to make sure that not only that the promoter is aware, but also that the fans are aware. And so it's a safe environment for the fans, for the promoter, for the artist. Draven and his team travel the world going from con to con, and they'll be inking up Emerald City Comic Con guests throughout the weekend. Artists like Kelly Rogers and Kale Turpin say this was the perfect opportunity for them. Oh, it's huge. I mean, on the circuit, it's like very familiar now. We're, we are a staple. We are part of the attraction. We are part of the program now you know people expect us to be at these shows and then bringing that kind of home where everybody at at our home base is like man you're always on the road you're always torn like it kind of blows us up a little bit you know to where we come home and people are like yeah that's 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 the guy who's uh has the the, the artist license with lucasfilm that's the guy who's like you know been been hanging with these celebrities and doing all these pop culture tattoos that's the guy to go see if you want this tattoo you know this type of tattoo so bringing the tattoo experience to events like comic-con can help those feel more comfortable getting a tattoo, especially one representing your favorite piece of pop culture. A lot of us tattoo artists, you know, even even though we learn how to tattoo in kind of burly biker shops, like we're we're all nerds under underneath it all, right? So once that became cool and people started getting those kinds of tattoos, it was like, man, like this is a great thing. But a lot of that clientele is kind of nervous to come into those shops. So why don't we take our environment to them? To where they feel a lot more comfortable and one of the first shows that we ended up doing was a horror theme show that's kind of how it started and we all had such a blast that we decided to start going doing other shows you know so 16 years later here we are I was always into that kind of thing. I was always into the art style with comics and more of anime, the manga stuff. And as it just became popular, it just seemed like a great transition. You know, even my shop at home, it's it's brightly lit with comic book and movies and all sorts of stuff all over the walls. And maybe you're like me. Curious what it actually means to get copyrighted material tattooed on your body? 
I asked Draven if there was anything to worry about. If you said, okay, tattoo Darth Vader on me, okay, I'll tattoo it on it. Now, if I made a, a painting of Darth Vader and I started selling thousands of copies of this painting without that being licensed, that's a copyright infringement because I'm mass producing something. Whereas, versus if I'm tattooing you, I could do the same design on somebody else, but it's not going to look the same because it's not you again. You know, it, it's, it's going to lay out different on every person. So, and there's always little things that you change, you know, to make it unique to you. While appointments were recommended, walk-up appointments are available this weekend at Emerald City Comic Con with Ink Fusion, including designs that only take about an hour to complete. People don't want to spend all day getting tattooed at a pop culture Comic Con atmosphere. They have other stuff they want to do. It's not the same as like a tattoo convention where that's the main focus of it. Here, there's so much more. They want to meet their favorite celebrity. They want to get their signature. They want to load up on Funko Pops. They want to get some new cool T-shirts. They want to have experiences along with getting the tattoo. So I've kind of tailored my designs to be more smaller, kind of boutique, petite things that can get done, you know, within an hour. So they have the whole rest of their day still to go do all the fun stuff that they want to do. And I think it's just turned into one of people's favorite ways to commemorate their time at Comic-Con. I mean, you know, you can, a Funko Pop can get destroyed. You can't really get rid of a tattoo easily. Paul Holden, Cairo News Radio. So Paul has to pay royalties on his arm now. It's interesting. We had a hopeful sign yesterday with a brief but high-level meeting between U.S. and Russian officials. That doesn't happen very often these days. It was Antony Blinken, our Secretary of State, and Sergei Lavrov for the Russians. And we called up Face the Nation moderator Margaret Brennan to find out what went on and what it might lead to. You know, in a different day and age, a 10-minute conversation in the hallway at a conference between the Secretary of State and Russia's foreign minister wouldn't be front-page news, but it is because the two haven't really had much contact with at all during the past year of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But the State Department says Secretary Blinken buttonholed Lavrov and raised to him three issues, but one in particular stood out, and that is the deal that the U.S. has put on the table to broker the release of U.S. citizen Paul Whelan, a Marine veteran who remains in Russian detention and has for years now. Whelan's birthday is on Sunday. Is the Russian offensive underway now? I haven't heard much about that. Well, it depends on who you ask, uh, but there is some deep skepticism about the strength of uh, the Russian military offensive if if that is what's underway, as some have said uh, already in places like Bakhmut, that um, uh, area that Russian forces appear to be able to take but isn't very strategically important. It's a it's a war of attrition at this point, um, according to many military analysts. Inch for inch, it's um, bloody and it's a meat grinder. Uh, but Russia at this point controls about 18 percent of Ukraine, according to the, uh, the Institute for the Study of War. So Russia's still holding on tightly. When I spoke to the CIA director, Bill Burns last Friday, he said that in his view, the Russians um, have shown zero interest whatsoever in pulling back or in talking about an end to the conflict. Just no interest and uh, a solid belief that they can continue to grind it out on the battlefield and ultimately wear down the Ukrainians. Hmm. So is this still do you know if this is still playing well in, in Russia for Putin's constituents? Well, it's an authoritarian state. Um, so uh, whether or not it is popular, 
doesn't necessarily fully matter to Vladimir Putin's hold on power. What you hear from uh, people like Director Burns when I asked these questions last Friday, he said, look, you know, ultimately over the long haul, this could be damaging to Vladimir Putin. Um, certainly it is to the to the Russian state, but that the people who are being conscripted and forced to go and fight in Ukraine are among the poorest people in the population. They're men coming from regions like Dagestan. So that ultimately this could foment some kind of discontent. Most Russian men who could afford to leave, according to the U.S., uh, are, are considering doing that to avoid that conscription that Vladimir Putin put in place to call up about 300,000 men. But we have imposed, from my view uh, out here anyway, wave after wave of sanctions. Yeah. Uh, have, th- have those been uh, overrated? They don't seem to be making much difference. Well, not difference in terms of the will of Vladimir Putin, that's for sure. Um, but in terms of making it harder for him, that is the argument that, that the U.S. and the West make, that these sanctions are painful because they are hurting his ability to trade with the most powerful economies. But the card that Vladimir Putin has in his pocket appears to be China. And then some of these other countries who are deciding to remain neutral, uh, African countries, for example, countries in South America, for example, um, where trade continues. But with China, there is a lot of trade uh, that has picked up because even despite the U.S. and the West condemning it, uh, China, they claim to be neutral, but are anything but in terms of the behavior here. CBS's Margaret Brennan, moderator of Face the Nation. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Robert W. Baird. An Indiana community is giving back to the man who delivers pizzas with a smile. Here's CBS's Steve Hartman. A pizza delivery man got a much bigger piece of the pie last month when a customer here in Tipton, Indiana, tipped him way more than 15%. You know, I couldn't believe it. It's still almost like it's surreal. Robert Peters has been delivering pizzas 31 years. Pizza Hut says he's one of their longest tenured delivery people, which Robert admits isn't something most folks aspire to. There are people in my family that were, you know, say maybe you should consider something a little bit more financially stable, but um, it is my purpose in life, trying to make people happy. You know, when you're delivering to somebody, you may be the only face they even see all day. It's good to see you again. You and it's that attitude. Hey, how you doing? Combined with an almost obsessive devotion to customer service. I always appreciate you, man. That has earned Robert a real reputation in this town. Thank you so much. Tanner Langley is a regular. He says, God forbid you pay for a pizza and Robert can't make exact change. He'll drive three or four miles down the road in a blizzard just to bring you, you know, 15 cents and change. But you're tipping him anyway. Yeah. Why does 15 cents matter? It's the moral of it. He didn't want to feel like you had to tip him because he didn't have the change. After so many experiences like that, Tanner felt compelled to give Robert a tip commensurate with his job performance. So he reached out to the community and asked them to pitch in to buy Robert a new car. Robert's 93 olds was an ancient. But in just three days... The good people of Tipton donated enough for this. Oh, wow. A shiny red Chevy Malibu, plus insurance and gas money, $19,000 total. Tanner, how do you explain this? That's what I'm saying. That is the type of impact that he has on people. And that really makes me, makes me feel really, really good inside. 
Here are your keys. A lot of people think certain jobs are more important than others. But Robert proves the most important job, in fact, the only job that you know can make the world a better place, is yours. Thank you. You too. Thank you. See you later. And that is Steve Hartman. Just to double check, the town is actually called Tipton. There you go. All right. <laughs> 749, now from the Gene Ursula Show, G. Scott's going to reveal his body art. This came up because uh, Paul went to Comic-Con and he got a tattoo. Yeah. Oh, he did? Yeah, yeah. I missed that With part. The, the we're not supposed to, swinging. Yeah, we're not supposed to say anything because his mom doesn't approve. Oh, so I, I didn't well, to keep it on the cute. He's an thing. adult. I didn't, I didn't know Paul was a nerd. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Self-professed. I mean, yeah. he said yeah. it himself. Yeah. I didn't know that about him. Yeah. So you have a tattoo? Well, yeah, I have a bunch of tattoos. A bunch of tattoos? Yeah, yeah. But, but I think but the bigger I'm, surprise is if Dave had revealed he had a tattoo today. Dave, you, I do not have. I have age spots. That's fine. <laughs> Dave, That's, you, I, I would thought you would have had a tattoo like at the small of your back. Why? I don't know. I can't see it there. That's yeah. yeah. Sometimes that's the best part. Yeah, that's yeah. the best part. Yeah. Um, so how many do you have? I didn't know he had. That. I don't. I don't know how many because they kind of all run together. I see. But how many sessions have you had? I don't know. Dozens. Yeah. Okay. Probably at least. Yeah. I think tattoos are like because sometimes you know like hey you need to figure out what it is that you want on your body that's going to last because it's going to be permanent mm. and and you know in thirty years you're going to want that tattoo to still mean something to you. Mm. The thing is, is that in my opinion, with tattoos, tattoos are about that time. Like that was what was going on in your life. You mm. thought that that was important to put on your body at that time. Then usually I think that when you get that tattoo, you can look at the tattoos on your body. At least I do. And I go to and look at the time period. So for an example, on my wrist, right? Mm-hmm. There's eyes that I have. Mm-hmm. I see that. And, and the reason why I got eyes on each of my wrist is I was having a really hard time. Really hard time. And so I had this idea that I needed help from someone to help me view the world. Mm -hmm. Now, I know it sounds corny, but this is the truth. Mm -hmm. And so I took the little money that I had and I went and got this tattoo and I had this vision that no matter what, I always have someone helping me to look out. Mm, To remind you. did it work? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I think it did. Yeah. But, but, but I did that though. Yeah. But, but that was my, that was my reason. Right. Um, my first tattoo was, um, my college, um, the, the mascot and, and I got a basketball. Right. And so that was at 18 years old. That was my first tattoo. And I thought, Ooh, that was big time. Matter of fact, I got that tattoo for $60 and I was like, Ooh, wee. do you do color? Or just, <sighs> a lot of money. just black ink or do you ever do uh, color? Uh, well, I have some, um, uh, no color yet, but okay. I want I want to. It also because you're such a fashionista. I consider tattoos like a um, an extension of a fashion expression. Yeah. To me, it's like an added art to the body that is an extension of the clothes that you're wearing, an extension of yourself. To me, that I think tattoos are beautiful on everyone. I think they are as well. Um, 
but you you kind of get out of it. I th- I have phased out of doing it because I found myself I was doing it all the time, and I think sometimes once you stop doing it, you're like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna go back. And there's a lot of people that's probably saying right now, yeah, I've been saying I was gonna go back, but it's been ten years, yeah. and it's <laughs> and like it's expensive. I, and then and then now I have kids. Now it's like, hey, mom, dad, where you going? Oh, I'm on my way to a tattoo session, and you don't want to say that. Yeah. And you you know you try to be an example, and then you know then you become Dave Ross, and then mm. you just don't get no tattoos. Well, I might get one. It would be my phone number in case I'd ever forget it. Yeah. Let's get SMN tattoos. D- Dave, seriously, you, yeah. would you really consider getting a tattoo? No. No, you wouldn't get SMN for Seattle's Morning News? Why would I do that? I, for fun, to commemorate our almost 10 years together. S- SMN, Dave, Ross, and Colleen on the small of your back. Can we do one, just one of those Cracker Jack decal things? Okay, sure. Okay. By the way, okay. th- I didn't like Cracker Jacks. That yeah. was the only reason why I wanted the Cracker Jacks box. For the tattoo? For the tattoo. So, so you've been a tattoo fan since, yeah. since you were a kid. For sure. It was meant to be. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. Let us now take you down to spring training in Peoria, Arizona. And here is Seattle Sports 710's own Mike Salk. Mike, what's it like? Well, Dave, this is my favorite week of the year. Honestly, I just love it. I I mean, as a baseball person and a person who hates bad weather, coming down here to Arizona in March and experiencing just the baseball and the and the heat and everything just for the sun for a week it is this is my happy place so uh, it's been a blast honestly and and this year for the first time in my time in Seattle and I've been here since 2009 they're coming off a playoff season and there's a, a nice level of confidence a nice level of bravado without arrogance and it's a it's kind of a vibe that I don't ever remember feeling at any of my previous trips down here. Mm, I'll ask the big whopper of the question right off the top. Are they going to make the World Series this year? <laughs> they certainly are good enough to. Mm. They absolutely have the horses. Now, you know, it's baseball. Who stays healthy? Who has a good season? Who has a down season? I mean, what do some of the other teams around them do? Who do they acquire midseason? Do they get some luck on their side, which is necessary if you want to get all the way to the end? You know, all those are real legitimate questions. So I'm not going to tell you they're going to the World Series, Colleen. You won't jinx it. But are they capable of it? Yeah, they really are. I mean, it's a very good team. They have one of the best pitching staffs in baseball, led by a real ace in Luis Castillo, who you may remember they acquired last year and who was their open, you know, starter in the playoffs for game one. He will be their opening day starter this year, and he is really good. And they got the rest of that rotation with Robbie Ray, a former Cy Young Award winner, and the two kids, Logan Gilbert and George Kirby. I mean, that's about as good a first four pitchers as any team in the league is going to put out on paper. And then you have a bullpen that's been excellent, and you got the Julio factor. Yeah, I, I think they're a very, very good baseball team, and if some things go their way, I think they can absolutely be a World Series team. Are they used to the pitch clock yet? I think they're getting there. Are you, Dave? Have you have you watched I have any not, of it? I've 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 seen some uh, YouTube replays of it. I I read that there was one game that actually was decided because of a pitch clock yeah. foul. Uh, how yeah. do you feel about that? I don't love it, but I understand it, if that makes sense. I think there's some other ways, and I wrote about it at SeattleSports.com this week, that they could have done it where they, they made sure that the worst offenders of taking too long between pitches, that you, you sped those guys up without having to have a clock constantly. But look, so far, it, it, the new rules in baseball are having the desired effect. Batting average is up more than 10 points from this point at spring training last year. Wow. Game time is down over 20 minutes from where they were at this point last year as well. So it is having the desired effect. The game goes quicker. 
right? You're seeing more games played at almost two and a half hours, ah. which is completely different from where baseball's been for the last decade plus. And you're seeing more hits go through because they're getting rid of the shift. So, yeah, look, it's not, it's not, I'm not the target demo for needing the shift. I can sit there and watch three and a half hour baseball games and enjoy the slow pace. But if they would like to, to try to bring in a younger demo, this may very well have the ability to do it. What's the big controversy right now? Here? No. Gosh, there is none. None? There is there no is controversy. Zero. Wow, this Not is really. so unlike. I'm used to the NFL having controversy after controversy. So baseball's well, just playing it cool, huh? Well, especially the Mariners. There's just no yeah. controversy at all. I mean, this is a team where there's a lot of really good dudes on this team. A lot of really likable guys. All the interviews we've had this week have just been, you know, afterwards, Brock and I look at each other like, man, that was just fun. Oh, I love and that. at the heart of it all is Julio, who is, first of all, we were up close with Julio this this week for the first time in a while. Two, three feet away doing an interview for 15 minutes. He has the most beautiful green eyes I've oh. ever seen. They are shockingly like... They are entrancing. The picture doesn't do it justice, Colleen. I mean, we sat here, Brock and I, ooing and aahing afterwards. Our producer, Maura, was like, hey, usually I think you guys are creepy, but you're right. Like, they're just... They're 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 spectacular. You get lost in them and the intensity. He, he is so dynamic and such a superstar. So that's, you know, Julio, wherever he goes, is the biggest story. But the other one is probably Jared Kelnick, and, and it's a name you've been hearing a lot for the last few years. He's been another one of those top five prospects in baseball, and unfortunately, his first couple seasons have been up and down. He hasn't done what he was predicted to do, and he's he's another one who right now has been arguably their best player in camp. He's got three home runs. He's, he's hitting the ball well. He's hitting the ball hard. If he is able to become the prospect that he was rumored to be, and he's still only 23 years old, so it's not like that ship has sailed, this team will be a lot better than people think. I like hearing that. And I didn't yeah. realize that Julio had this the secret weapon, these, Dave. these gorgeous Dave. eyes. So he can just Dave. stare into the eyes of the pitcher, and, and, and the poor guy gets a pitch clock foul. I, I, I think he would wither. I mean, I just buckled to his knees. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's like watching Elvis. I mean, like, he's just, he's in his own category. I can't wait for the commercials with those eyes front and center. Okay, so now because we're all very pale and vitamin D deficient mm, here yeah. in Seattle with this cold weather, can you just hit us with what it feels like in Arizona no. right now before we No, I won't up? do that. I, you know, I try to be likable. You know, that's my oh. role. Everybody loves me on the show. Brock's sort of the villain. And <laughs> everybody, you know, naturally gravitates towards me. So I don't want to make anybody feel bad about 65. 70. Sunshine all the way. No cloud 65 cover. 65 degrees. Just straight mm. on. No fog of any kind or, you know, patchy ice. Look, I, I certainly didn't call my wife a few times this week and talk about the heat or anything mm. like that. That's just not right. I didn't play any golf. No way. That would be inappropriate right. while here for work. Yeah, that's good. Well, I'm glad that you are maintaining your monastic existence despite <laughs> all the temptations down there. Yes. And uh, very happy to hear that the Mariners are good enough to uh, get a pennant this year. Yeah, this is a good team. And, and beyond that, they're a fun team. And you saw the way Seattle fell in love with them last year. You saw the way it was when they won a playoff series to a person we've been asking all the players hey what was the best memory of last year mm -hmm. and they all to a man have said well it's cal's home run to send them to the playoffs mm -hmm. it was so magical it was so important to them and he is such a big part of their future and, and just sort of this guy they all root for 
that yeah, you can feel it. it. It has changed a little bit, and and after some dark times, it'll be interesting to see how they recapture this town and and the way it was in the late '90s and into the early 2000s. This this group has the capability of doing it. They've got some of that charisma. They've got some of the likability, and most of all, they've got some talent and some green eyes. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful green eyes. And nobody's angling to get their coaches fired, so it's all good. Oh, <laughs> camp tranquility right now, Dave. Camp tranquility. Mike Sox, Seattle Sports 710 in Peoria, Arizona. Thank you, Mike. Of course. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.